and welcome to the eTech Podcast with me, your host, Ryan Morn. I have been involved in the development of electrified vehicles and machines since 2005 as an engineer and a business leader. This podcast is the product of my passion for electric and autonomous vehicle technology. I'm here to share knowledge from some of the world's leading experts, as well as my own insights. Join me as we accelerate the transition to cleaner, safer and smarter vehicles and grow the industry around the world. And for today's show, we've got John Springer with us. He is the segment manager for e-mobility at a fantastic company called Dynapower. Welcome to the show, John. Oh, thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having me. No problem. Could you, we get started just um, to find a bit more about you and uh, tell us about your background and, and how you got involved in, in doing what you're doing now, please. Yeah, fantastic. So um, I've got mostly business experience as a background in business as a Bachelor of uh, Business Administration from the University of Nevada. However, I always had a very strong interest in electronics, electronic design, and kind of through my career, I've been kind of pushed into those uh, types of strategic development, product development initiatives. Kind of starting at a young age, was always very interested in electronics, wiring together my own battery packs, putting things in series and parallel to be able to have uh, um, mobile CB radios, um, being able to make my uh, piano keyboard mobile for certain for certain applications. So, um, yeah, building motors out of uh, like designs that I would find in uh, books. I'm I'm a, a little on the older side, so the <laughs> internet didn't yet uh, quite exist. So this was more like 1970s uh, textbooks. Some listeners may have to look up what one of those is, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. But always like a, like a, like an aptitude for it and, and always kind of an interest in electronics. Um, I, I had, uh, mostly have, uh, business director level roles kind of running sales teams, um, about 15 years ago, uh, kind of was working for what was predominantly um, office supplies. We were one of the largest uh, importers and distributors. But one of the products that truly captured my interest was honestly the uh, laptop batteries. And um, being able to kind of provide laptop batteries um, in large quantities to education institutions and um, government agencies. And um, kind of through that, got uh, a request from um, some of the school districts in Texas to learn that the uh, one-to-one laptop programs that they had been rolling out, they had noticed that the uh, the battery life uh, wasn't long enough to be able to last through the uh, the school day. So so uh, was was asked to kind of come up with a uh, like high capacity solution. Uh, in a very short amount of time that was economical. So working kind of with some of our manufacturing partners were able to um, create a design uh, based on an existing uh, laptop battery and provide the additional capacity, which was great. Uh, resulted in a lot of sales, solved a problem, the laptops ran through the day, um, only to get several months later a call from HP. And and I, I thought this this conversation would go completely sideways as a violation of their LP. Um, 
was uh, yeah, it was uh, kind of an unexpected phone call, but um, kind of had learned through the process that they had uh, been able to get their hands on some of the uh, laptop batteries that um, I had designed and manufactured. And they expressed a similar problem with one of the very early uh, two-on-one computers as uh, they started performing the actual like testing. Their, ba- their, their laptop also would not um, last through an entire school day. And uh, we're, we're looking for a uh, solution faster than what their existing supply chain could support. So um, went into a development opportunity in producing a high capacity battery uh, for rollout nationally through the third party channels for an alternative to the uh, existing battery. That definitely didn't go the way you thought it was going to go. <laughs> No, 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 no. I thought it was gonna. I, I thought it was gonna be a more conversation, like if Apple were to call you up. But this one was uh, far more agreeable, and uh, and it really, and it really kind of uh, set my appetite on kind of um, those real world problems and trying to uh, come about real world solutions. And in sticking with that, um, moved over to work at a company PowerSonic, which is a large international uh, manufacturer, predominantly of lead acid batteries, um, some lithium batteries as well, and, uh, and, and had the opportunity to work on additional projects uh, like no idle um, solutions for, for trucking, uh, mobile welding applications. And then after working for the company for a couple of years, three of us were brought up um, from inside of it. And we were asked to create a separate business unit for uh, energy storage to be able to support DC fast charging. Um, so leveraging yeah, our existing um, uh, customer base and uh, it, in industry knowledge, uh, put together the uh, strategies and product portfolio. DC fast charging for cars. Yes, so we're in the, into the EV era here now. So we're, you know, probably quite early, early-ish on in the EV time. What sort of time period would this have been? This was just a few years ago, honestly. Um, a, a lot of the uh, a lot of the initial installations, as you probably recognize, are kind of the low-hanging fruit areas of uh, adequate uh, grid connection where you can AC couple DC fast chargers. But as you start to look at some of the fleets as they have rolled out their um, their installations, there's an obvious need to be able to support it with uh, both both resiliency as well as being able to supplement the interconnection that may be available to them. Ah, uh, yeah, okay. When they can't get a, um, a big enough feed from the, the main distribution grid to support the num- number of charges they want to install. Exactly, exactly. And I, I know that you probably had uh, previous discussions as it relates to kind of those microgrids and integrations, but um, depending upon which of the thousands of utilities that you have to work with in the United States, sometimes it's prohibitively difficult to get that upgrade. Uh, and in some instances, it's um, it's impossible. It's not even a question of, hey, it's going to be two or three years. It's we're not going to be able to upgrade your service. And my concern is, as it rolls out to some of these fleets, some of these locations end of the line are going to be critical hubs that um, that need to be supported if the there if there's really going to be a true realization of high levels of adoption for EVs at, at, at those at those facilities. 
Yeah, we see that problem in Europe as well and in the UK. It's hard to get a big grid connection in a lot of places, particularly in the south of England. Um, not not so much in the north where I am, but a lot of issues in the south and uh, southeast in particular, where there's a lot of much higher sort of population density. And then, you know, even just for one fast charger, but then if you are like a logistics company and you you might be, you know, realistically, we do have logistics companies who are putting 100 vans on the road now um, or more, you know, in these quite big rollouts in a in a one location. And uh, coming up with a way of charging those in one spot is is a big topic here because it then goes, you know, you're talking about a megawatts of uh, level of grid connection. So there's there's some clever things happened with like sharing infrastructure with rail companies and stuff. And uh, but it is still it's it's a it's a challenge that people are coming up against uh, all all the time. So so you you saw that as a a business area and you were working in the the space of those, um, the battery packs. So you, you kind of, you're pretty deep at that point in charging and, and charging infrastructure. Is that kind of how you, how you ended up coming into DynaPower? Um, DynaPower is a little bit different of an approach. So I was, DynaPower, um, celebrating our 60 years um, uh, as, as a company this year, actually, um, and then acquired by Sensata uh, about, a, about a year and a half ago. And for those who don't know, Sensata is a large organization who um, manufactures a lot of the uh, sensors and technology that go both in terrestrial vehicles as well as other um, heavy vehicle off-road marine applications and a strong emphasis on on aerospace so so was was uh was brought on board to help kind of define the um the path forward for dynapower in the e-mobility market um dynapower is historically known for high power applications um we 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 do a lot with uh microgrids high power we do uh, military and government work kind of solving the really difficult challenges the the really hard power electronics challenges that exist in in the market and dynapower is very well known for its dc to dc technology which is uh potentially well is is, is a coming um, topology that will be more frequently used for these megawatt charging applications and some of these larger uh, fleet depots. Uh, okay, so I, what I, I didn't realize, a DynaPower was quite as old as that. Um, so that's kind of that's like pre-power electronics, power electronics. Uh, so transformers, real, yeah, yeah, old school. Yeah. Um, very old school. And and now, sort of, I guess, finding a, a market opening up in all the grid connected. Um, infrastructure uh, equipment it, is it like just out of interest in uh, in my space a lot of people kind of uh, we talk about high voltages in electric vehicles and uh, all the kind of proper power engineers always giggle at the back of the classroom because like 800 volts is not high voltage uh, i'm guessing dynapower is probably typically in the the sort of kilovolt range uh, equipment yeah, it kind of really depends on the application. And in, in the emo, we 
One, one of the things that DynaPower builds is we build extremely large rectifiers that are the size of uh, small apartments. And these are being used for the electrolysis projects, some of the largest international electrolysis projects, which is one of the segments of DynaPower. Um, the other clean energy segments would be uh, microgrids. Uh, DynaPower was uh, one of the first in establishing the microgrid dynamic transfer technologies as well as uh, we also have a focus on renewables and renewables integration. And typically our scope um, is, is, in the, uh, is in the power electronics. But to your point, on the EV side, yeah, when we start talking about high voltage, we're not talking about like high voltage, high voltage. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so some, of the, um, some of the challenges are the, uh, like one of the emerging standards in the US, the SAE um, 3271, is kind of along those higher power megawatt charging standards. And it's up to uh, 1500 volts, 3000 amps is really the, the target, which still thinking about it is substantial. I mean, if, you, if, you, if that were a single charger at four and a half megawatts, that's, uh, that's relatively <laughs> impressive. Sounds relatively impressive. I, I think that's maybe a little bit of an understatement. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I don't think you want to. I don't think you want to plug your car into it. But uh, it does have its. It does have its place, though. We um, we've been in conversations with uh, with with large um, like mining organizations, uh, people that are building really large packs. I, they're building one megawatt hour packs at fifteen hundred volts. And the thing is, there's a high confidence with a lot of these OEM manufacturers in their ability to build a vehicle. But they're certainly not charging experts, so they're oftentimes left with decisions of how, how are we really going to effectively charge this? How are we going to build out the infrastructure? Do we become a charging company? Do we partner with somebody to kind of enable a, um, a like a one-off solution? Do we sit idly by and uh, wait for the um, the industry to mature providing a solution? Like which which way do you really want to go? in kind of developing um, the solutions necessary for, for high power charging. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned mining and, and we see um, quite a lot of activity at the moment around uh, deployment of battery electric into mining um, as, as, you know, really significant opportunity. Uh, underground mining, it seems like it's a no-brainer uh, because of the ventilation requirements and stuff for combustion vehicles. So very quickly going to full battery electric and, and actually have been for some years. But even the big open pit mines, they seem to be going down that route and, and obviously charging those things. Um, if you're talking about a 200 ton dump truck, it's, uh, it's no, that's no small feat. Uh, recently, I was involved with some railway projects. So, you know, again, kind of people putting um, battery powered trains into service. And then again, it's sort of very large battery packs up to kind of megawatt hour size battery packs so they take some charging if if you need to do it even fair you know moderately quickly um you need a lot of power available there so interesting that the output side you're talking about up to 1500 volts um it's sort of six six thousand amps or 600 amps. oh three thousand three thousand amps that's yeah yeah just that much i mean power but yeah. On the input side, do these things connect into directly into like the medium voltage grid or are they on some sort of localized um, power system? 
So that's kind of what we're um, looking towards in kind of the new topologies, because currently you would take a look at it and it'd be AC coupled as kind of a, a, as as needing to build basically a substation to to be able to support that level of charging. Um, but one of the one of the uh, like we're Dynapower is involved with, and I'm involved with uh, EVs at Scale, which is a national labs consortium. And really, the outcome is a DC coupled charging architecture that's of much higher efficiency, as well as the development of the power electronics that are necessary to be able to charge at those um, at those uh, at, the, at those outputs. When you when you look at kind of what exists for like DC to DC converter technology today, most of the uh, level three chargers are built out of smaller building blocks, uh, 30 kilowatt modules, 60 kilowatt modules. And if you can imagine how many you have to parallel to be able to get to these megawatt charging standards, it starts to become ridiculous numbers of, of converters. Um, what, one of the products that we, we sell, and it's, it's somewhat unique to the market, um, is a uh, larger format uh, DC to DC converter. So we have a 500 kilowatt DC to DC converter. We have a thousand kilowatt version coming out at the end of the year. And it runs voltages anywhere between an input of 100 to 1500 volts. And it's uh, symmetrical with an output of 100 to 1500 volts. So interestingly, it's it, it's used really for solar plus storage for DC coupled solar plus storage, but it's got a high amount of interest in the EV field since it's one of the few items that sort of builds to that that standard, that emerging megawatt standard. It checks a lot of the boxes kind of right off the, the top. So as far as test bed activities, uh, rail charging, marine charging, yeah, it's 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 something that's that's getting used for those types of high power charging applications, but it has a um, limitation in the fact that galvanic isolation and isolation isn't required in uh, solar applications, but as it relates to EV charging applications, it certainly does. So it's really kind of the the development of um, isolated DC to DC technology um, is a building block for some of these uh, larger high power charging applications. Uh, interesting. Lots of interesting things going on there. So leaping out of that, for me, um, the question, just to sort of pick, expand on a bit, what, what, like, what is it that you mean when you say this um, DC coupled charger topology? I think people will be familiar with like DC fast charging, but I, kn I know that's that's not what you mean. So uh, can you expand on that a bit for me? Yeah, certainly. So um, in the installations today, um, inside of the charging hubs themselves are, um, are, are the conversions from AC to DC. Uh, this, this shifts um, the AC to DC from the hub components to a single point of grid connection. So, so there's only the one-step conversion to a common DC bus. Uh, within that allows the integration of um, a more logical integration of uh, renewables, higher efficiencies. So if you take a look at wanting to integrate um, battery energy storage, um, solar, uh, hydrogen fuel cells, and being able to generate a, uh, a common DC bus, 
um, utilizing high power electronics where everything um, sits within the, the DC without multiple stages of AC to DC conversion. Uh, okay, so if we had a site, let's say we have five DC fast chargers that everyone's sort of familiar with, they are sitting and behind them somewhere we've got a big AC to DC converter bringing the power in from the grid and putting it into DC. But then we can drop onto that DC system a battery pack or other like direct solar inputs you, you mentioned, I think. So, yeah, yeah, we can integrate the solar exactly. So, being able to seamlessly integrate all through DC, um, yeah, all of those assets and then the uh, charger itself. Um, not taking it like an AC 480 feed, but rather a like thousand volts or as you build towards the megawatt scale on a 1500 uh, volt bus uh, directly into the charging unit itself. So it stays DC to DC the entire time um, as, as it would flow through the dispenser into the uh, the vehicle, whatever it is you're, you're aiming to charge. And that really, it, so you use the word dispenser there, which is, that, you know, that's, that's effectively simplifying the the bit of hardware that you would see at the vehicle simple is it simplifying yeah it's a, i guess it's simpler than see yeah simplified sounds good yeah it sounds good to me i'll i'll, I'll go with it but yeah uh, it would be a much uh, like a reduction in the size of the dispensers it's typically just acting as a pass-through um for the power electronics which aren't necessarily located right at the dispenser site itself i, I think i mean some companies are kind of moving towards this kind of topology for the bigger charger parks now and you, you do see it the the positive is i think they can load balance so you can have smaller grid connections and smaller ac to dc and stuff sitting at that side but the negative is if the the charger park is completely full uh, which doesn't happen that often but if it is then you can't have full power every single charger that's normally kind of sized uh sized off a little bit is that is that kind of about right yeah, like in a sense, um, when when you when you look at it, you can size the interconnection more appropriately towards the average than the maximum. So what you, what you're looking to do is um, really charge the EVs as soon as possible and as fast as possible is really is really kind of the aim. Um, the inverters first, if the uh, if the EV load were to exceed the inverter. Um, if it's not enough, then you would use the battery energy storage to supplement it. And then if neither is enough, then you do have to take a look at energy management strategies, potentially lowering the overall output of the system to be able to accommodate all of the vehicles. But one, one of the things that the um, more intelligent uh, site energy management software looks at today, it, or will look at more so in the future, are, are those algorithms of what what really is the dwell time? What what really is the required energy requirements for the vehicle? How do you prioritize what's coming in, what's going out? And if you're within a DC architecture, you do also have through kind of the emerging standards, the ability to power share amongst the other vehicles. So if everything's plugged into a common DC bus and something's going to sit idle for a while, that power and capacity can be re organized into providing it to the um the the uh most appropriate vehicle yeah yeah i guess as, as you were sort of saying it there, i was thinking yeah actually you know if, if you had five or even ten 
and it was busy. The busier it is, the more time you've got sort of, um, you know, put, putting vehicles on, putting vehicles off, plugging and plugging. So there is actually quite a significant amount of the time in the charge cycle where the, the charge is not being maxed out. And it can't be, you know, it could be because of the battery sort of charge profile or just physically someone having to pull up to it and plug into it and stuff. So managing that traffic flow through the park I can I can really see you can you could optimize the the structure of the uh, the power electronics on the site to and by that we mean make it more affordable. <laughs> so exactly, exactly, and and looking at it kind of as uh, more generating like a standardized topology, standardized products and offerings, where each one of them, each one of these large fleet installations doesn't necessarily need to become its own science experiment. In, in, in a way where, where you do start to see that industry standardization, the ability to take um, components and fewer components and being able to scale to what it is that you need today and a quicker path to augment a site for what potentially you might need tomorrow. And uh, so you mentioned you've been involved in um, a big project looking at so next generation um, charging and, and things like that. What 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 where is that project at now? Is it is it just kind of getting going, or have, is it um, is it up and running? Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, Dynapower has done um, some larger uh, with, with with partnerships, um, some large fleet installations. One of them um, being the uh, Brookville Bus Depot in Maryland, where we provided the power electronics and energy storage. And worked with um, worked with partners to be able to build a large uh, bus charging depot, integrating solar, um, eventually for hydrogen production, potentially for hydrogen fuel cell. But um, but th this system is again coupled on the AC side um, with with AC uh, fast chargers, not um, not not any of the uh, kind of sort like emerging currently um the dc coupled chargers and interestingly i have a lot of conversations with a lot of companies all the time and and it's and it's funny because like i'm a firm believer and nobody really has like a, an original idea there's there's eight billion people on the planet somebody's probably thought of it first so as it kind of reaches like a certain a certain point you start to see it more and more frequently so a lot of the conversations that i've been having with um with oems with site developers other stakeholders in the industry uh the dc coupled topology is definitely rolling forward and it will be a, a emerging topology that i think you're going to see a lot more frequently especially when you take a look at kind of the larger fleet and megawatt charging requirements yeah. What's holding it back, you know, today, what needs to happen for that to really accelerate? Is it hardware? Is it just the, the installations aren't going in yet? What, what's, um, what are we going to see? Yeah, I, I think that like much of it still has to do with kind of being able to, um, as it, as it relates to chasing like the Navi funds and kind of finding the low hanging fruit, the areas where there is adequate, um, interconnection where there isn't as much um, distribution uh, congestion as you start to run out of those sites and you have to start taking a look at other solutions to be able to provide that on-site generation or be able to work with a smaller interconnection you'll start to see this dc coupled 
um, topology occurring more frequently in in uh, in those in those instances where you can't just take a, a standard 480 connection and and plug it into a, a, a fast charger. But but for for like uh, the the requirements for the technology, there's there's uh, there's considerations to be made for the the hardware development, uh, the communications protocols, uh, working with site energy management software companies to be able to utilize it on a DC bus. There's questions about um, DC protection schemes, which are different than AC protection schemes, and ensuring that the these sites are are safe, but it's um, it's a very, very strong push forward from both the industry as a whole, as well as kind of Department of Energy initiatives and really seeing this um, brought to, to fruition. There's just too, too many, too many upsides to it um, in terms of, of efficiency, cost reduction, um, the, the ability to put really any DC based asset on the, on the bus much more efficiently than trying to, uh, build everything through different, different stages of conversion. Is this going to be just how charger parks are in the future, or is it more likely that it would be what we'd see in a commercial vehicle, um, installation and actually a passenger car charger park would look somewhat different? Yeah, I, there's the right solution for everything. So it's not it's not like AC coupled solutions are really going to go anywhere. If you have like a large park and you want to put in a lot of level two chargers and you have the existing AC interconnection, there's no reason to not to not necessarily couple that type of a solution on the AC side. Um, when it gets into kind of you're wanting to provide all of those DC generating assets all at a single location and wanting to have much larger fleets, then the questions of efficiency and ability to, to integrate that on-site um, on generation is important. And I personally feel that on-site generation is going to have to take some leaps and bounds forward. Um, just to accelerate the process of interconnection and be able to provide at those uh, points of use the powers the the power that would be required. But you can't always think of it in terms of having adequate solar. Um, I mean, if you take a look at like the amount of solar you may potentially require for some of these large um, developer charging uh, locations, you don't own the the fifty to a hundred adjacent acres. And you, 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 cer you certainly aren't going to be um, even potentially able to purchase it. I, I, I mean, like, you take, a, take a look at California. You're not, gonna, you're not necessarily going to buy the, the next 100 acres next to your site. So, so what, what, what sort of generation assets can you potentially put on a site to kind of augment its capabilities? Um, and it's a combination of things. It's a combination of, of what you can get that's available today, what will be coming in the future, how best can you integrate the renewables? Do you want to maybe integrate like hydrogen fuel cells as a as kind of a smaller format yet um, ability to be able to kind of provide that that base load power? Do you think um, most sites are going to end up having a bit of on-site battery storage then, as as we move forwards? So that the actually batteries are are going to be a big part of the, that that infrastructure because uh, you can get a bit of solar on site and if you have a factory or something you can get it solar on the roof but do you think um actually the 
the real answer or another answer is just using that smaller grid connection and kind of trickle charging a, a buffer battery pack is that going to become you know what we see as a standard yeah i think that um in in at least the midterm the integration of the batteries on site is uh it is a positive way to take a look at what you have available and then being able to supplement it um, with the energy storage. It helps to reduce the demand charges or the, the peak draw um, to the side itself, um, kind of moderates that. Uh, depending upon the location, you can shift time of use. So you can collect the energy um, at the lowest point of use and then dispense it when it's most expensive during the day. Or in other instances where people take a look at the like school bus situation and the ability to potentially monetize your fleet using uh, DER solutions, selling back the energy from the grid. Now, that's one of the few instances in which like i think that that business model works when when we're speaking with fleet operators they want to charge their vehicles not necessarily participate in grid support services like that might be down the road and the batteries will certainly help support that but when they take a look at it first they're a logistics company but maybe they do need to start taking a look at themselves as uh, as an energy company as well yeah it's an interesting one with i mean the us school bus is a sort of special we don't we don't have anything like that in uh, in Europe. Uh, they've used the public buses typically, or uh, kind of charter in buses that then spend the rest of the day doing other other work to do the school duties. Um, so the, these kind of big fleets that you you have in the US of buses that are, are then kind of idle most of the day um, and have two peaks. It's it's not something that we have in Europe. I, th I think in some parts of Asia they have similar where they're shipping you know, high densities of um, workers in and out of industrial areas and factories and things. But uh, our, I think the load factor here, the, the you know, the vehicles are moving basically. And the problem is that they don't stood still for long enough. <laughs> so <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And that's, and that's the case of most of like, the, like th that's always been built down to a science is like, how can I keep my fleet moving and operating? And that's why some of the high power applications are so important is to reduce dwell time. If you take a look at like the mining scenario again, um, if that truck is down for an hour, I mean, what's that really costing in terms of revenue? So, so the ability to to fuel that vehicle, to charge that vehicle, is is of importance. And with the school buses in the U.S., honestly, that that fleet sits idle through the summer. So you have this, you have this, these batteries assets, the, the the battery assets that are literally sitting there for months, available for grid support services. But in in kind of my experience in talking to um, different corporations, different ways of realizing this that seems to be kind of uh, interesting outlier it's it's interesting that many of the rfps that are being released do have a component for vehicle to grid services is, is part of the requirement so it's it's not it's not as if it's just um it, it's kind of compulsory in in the sense that like it's it's a requirement it's not necessarily like a choice sometimes i think I mean, not not so much for vehicle charging, but one application I have heard about a few times, which is quite quite an interesting one from an energy storage point of view. You know, a lot a lot of buildings require backup power systems, so you know they might have a backup generating set or some sort of big UPS. And I have heard of a company who effectively 
are doing like a managed UPS service using batteries. And part of the business model they have is that they also provide um, grid um, support, you know, fast frequency response type um, services with those installed systems. So I think, you know, like a hospital or a well, any building with a with a backup power supply, which uh, particularly in the US is, is quite a lot of them, you've you've got um, some installed capacity potential there, which you could use for other purposes. You know, like supporting charging um, and buffering the grid for stuff. So when when you start to think about buildings and in a more kind of joined up way, that kind of energy system, um, all all of a sudden, there's lots of possibilities for the things that you can do in 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 amongst all of that. Yeah, absolutely agreed. And I think that that is a positive use of being able to support the grid, provide that resilience, that safety um, that comes with having those distributed resources, which are more localized in terms of if there's an outage or if there's a problem and the ability to act, like monetize your asset. So instead of it just sitting idly by, there is an opportunity to both support the grid as well as um as as well as uh the those economic considerations one of the other interesting scenarios is um in mitigating demand charges and uh time of use rates even at smaller um like nevi size charging locations if you were to put battery energy storage at those locations to help mitigate the demand charges yet also aggregate all of those assets as a collective then you could use the aggregated assets as an economic dispatch as well even using smaller battery systems yeah i do i mean i wonder as we start to see more and more of that like just per, from a personal perspective i fitted solar and battery in my home so residential system the battery side of it actually is a no-brainer. Um, so we don't use peak electricity basically anymore, you know, um, even if we don't have enough solar. We live in the north of England, so we're not exactly blessed with a lot of solar, <laughs> uh, not like California, but um, we've got, you know, a bit. But it really is the battery side of it and shifting our demand into that, uh, you know, three or four hours of, of off-peak um, between 12.30 and 4.30 in the morning. Um that's when we that's when we put all of our consumption through the and i wonder how much of an because obviously if everyone's doing that then that's no that becomes not the point at which it's uh no demand so there's it'd be interesting to see what starts to happen in terms of people being able to shift that demand point around and then the other thing is then what does that mean for the grid you know um i mean we've uh, the solar and battery system we've put on our residential property, uh, we've absolutely slashed our um, energy costs, which which is great because it means we've got these assets and they're doing their job for us. But it then means that we're not kind of making that contribution back into the grid and centralized uh, generation. And you do wonder if, if an, a lot of people start to shift to more decentralized power, uh, particularly industrial commercial users, what kind of impacts that's going to start to have on the grid and more like centralized power generators. I don't know if you, you have any thoughts on that. Are you starting to see things like that happen? Actually, I, I do have some thoughts on that. That very closely mirrors one of my good friends' perspectives. So one of my good friends is the uh, director of transmission planning for NV Energy, so the utility here in, in Nevada. And and it does closely mirror that as, as you put these 
these um, these storage and generation assets on your property, you're you're still interacting with the grid. You're you're not an off grid system, so you still are are a, uh, a customer in terms of their needing to support, upgrade infrastructure, provide that to provide your your point of connection. And then what happens is a trade-off to the other people that don't necessarily have that that um, that capability yet at their house. And does there become a tipping point where how how do you choose to support the infrastructure if everybody's bill is netting out to zero dollars? <laughs> yeah. It's not commercially it's not very good for the um the network operator. <laughs> yeah. No, it's not. And then in the U.S., it's uh, a lot of the infrastructure build out. They, they, there's a lot of talk of being um, proactive in developing the infrastructure necessary. But it's kind of been my experience that really they wait on interconnection applications before building it out. And you have to say who's who's really going to foot the bill, who's really going to be the off taker of the infrastructure upgrades, who is going to pay for it and where do you put it? And pr- like you can run it predictively, but without hard world data, it's hard to, to necessarily justify that business decision for utility. Now they want to put in the additional infrastructure, but they need assurances that like once they've made those upgrades, that there's going to be a customer at the end of the line. I mean, do you think in general, the case study or the history of Dynapower as a company, you've gone from like transformer-based technology to active power electronics technology. Do you think it's getting less expensive or more sort of expensive to do grid scale development? Because we've got a lot more technology than we ever had, you know, solid state stuff at a grid level, so grid voltages or even regional, um, you know, local... Uh, medium voltage systems is that helping or is it actually just there's it's just all more expensive and more complicated than it used to be in terms of the economics for it as it relates to more or less expensive i think a lot of it just ends up being just prohibitively difficult to achieve in terms of correcting the distribution congestion that exists in the united states itself is what what really does the infrastructure upgrades look like in in terms of upgrading the entire infrastructure to be able to support the having renewables put onto the grid um, having the distribution level service available when you need it and how long does that take Um, applications take take quite quite a long time to be able to go through and when you look at having the, the amount of infrastructure upgrades just in general that are going to be required in the U.S., I mean, you're, you're starting to look at, and I mean, don't don't quote me on this. This isn't McKenzie numbers, but like it's a trillion dollar problem. This isn't this isn't going to be solved by like a few billion dollars. I mean, you're you're it, and it has to be solved in such a radically short period of time that really taking a look at what you can do in terms of batteries and distributive energy resources is important because the overall upgrade to the infrastructure I think is going to be out quite a bit further than some people might anticipate. It does seem like the more distributed systems provide that kind of speed element that, I mean, uh, particularly if you're looking at building a new nuclear plant or something like that, I mean, that's a decades-long project, isn't it? <laughs> it's sort of the scale of uh, rollout of and more nuclear 
which is is there's interesting work happening on that um, in the UK, um, particularly with small reactors and things. But it's it's that's decades away from being uh, in service. Yeah, I, I agree, and I, I I have my feelings on the subject, and don't necessarily always interject because I don't want to be pointed out as the crazy person when it comes to nuclear generation, but. When a small footprint, something that provides baseload power, doesn't rely on the wind, doesn't rely on the sun, and can have that continually that continuing output um, without having to own the adjacent 100 acres, uh, is an attractive solution. And some of those containerized solutions have a lot of fail safes in them. They don't go over like five or six hundred degrees. There's there's it's difficult to push something like that into runaway, but. But you're you're right in like the legislation, and then just the cons the uh, consumer appetite for for that um, for that for that dirty word of technology. Um, I, I wonder how far out it really is. But in in the need to really like correct realistic generation sources in a smaller footprint, I I, I still would table it as an idea for sure. I think the advantage that we have in the UK. The US, some parts of Europe, not all parts of Europe, is that there's some existing plants and you can kind of more easily get permission to build something new in an existing plant. So if you can add capacity, small footprint stuff inside existing this sort of designated areas, that's that's quite doable. But getting permission for new stuff is just, just almost impossible. Um, I mean, even in the UK at the moment, I was reading in the news yes, yesterday about uh, there's a it had been a push to try and get more energy from waste plants, which you know, when you call it an energy from waste plant sounds nice, but when you call it a waste incinerator that generates energy, it doesn't sound so nice. Uh, and they're having huge problems getting planning permission to put even one up. You know, it's it's uh, seems like a no-brainer in terms of solving two problems, but people just don't want them. It, it does. It just has that negative connotation, which makes it difficult. Like I've looked into waste energy in the past and, and in a lot of instances it seems like a pretty viable solution in um, being able to have, have a, a reasonable feedstock have be able to sequester the output and in, in, in terms of being able to not just generate electricity but it also generates like hot water um, there there are there are like yeah there are other pluses to it. And then the the water component potentially you could figure out a way of of integrating it with like hydrogen electrolysis or something like that. I mean, there's a lot of options kind of available for it, but it but it does kind of have that that social stigma, which I think makes it more difficult to have an uptake. Yeah, even that you know waste food waste energy, which is sort of one less so anaerobic digestion plants, is pretty difficult to get permission for those as well uh people don't like them either so uh it's kind of uh you gotta this is very hard to keep everyone happy so i just kind of um wondering uh maybe like diving slightly back towards the your technology side of things i was aware or have been aware of there's, there's some really interesting stuff happened with power electronics technology for higher voltage applications in in the last couple of years and and uh my Friends and colleagues who know much more about it than me tell me there's some really interesting things coming with like gallium nitride switching devices and higher voltage silicon carbide switching devices and stuff, making effectively things possible for high voltage, high power power electronics that were not possible even a couple of years ago. 
are, are you seeing that change your business at Dynapower? And, and how quickly are you seeing new technology come through that's going to really start to change what your uh, power converters look like? Yeah, I, I really can only speak honestly to like the product developments that I'm intimately involved with. On our renewable side, there is uh, certainly talk of um, high transmission DC to DC as opposed to uh, the, the AC propagation. But for, for what we really need in terms of e-mobility, the silicon carbide, IGBT, it's an existing technology which it can be integrated into what's needed, at least in the foreseeable future, without having to creep into incredibly high voltages where, uh, or higher voltages where um, it, it may be a ways off. Like we've been, we've been asked to achieve like 5,000 volts kind of on the input side of things on, on a larger bus. But um, in terms of like economics, one, one of the considerations is also, um, is what's economically feasible. When you want to roll out these like fleets and depots and working with emerging technologies, you 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 also want to ensure that I think you you want to meet like those economic targets. So these so these uh, so everything pencils, like we like so what what can be achieved realistically. Um, is important as you develop a roadmap for the future. But some of this DC coupled technology and what we need to develop in terms of the power electronics can be done now. It doesn't necessarily rely on like a future technology. Okay, cool. Looking ahead, so like what's, what have you got coming up the next kind of year um, or two that you're most excited about? What's your, what's your outlook on the future? Ah, yeah, so it's, it's really um, moving more towards the high power charging applications and being able to take a look at it, not necessarily in just terms of terrestrial vehicles, but our um, ownership by Sensata also provides um, the ability to work in, in other markets as it relates to um, high power marine charging applications, uh, starting the conversations with the electric aircraft manufacturers, um, heavy vehicles, mining equipment, and, and really kind of staying um, in, in what Dynapower is really known to do, which is solving complicated problems um, with higher power solutions. Uh, the 60-year legacy of being able to achieve this for many, many partners over, over the years. So really kind of looking towards those high power applications and really looking to help develop the DC coupled um, topologies for some of these fleet installations, as well as it relates to like the marine and aerospace um, markets as well so we look forward to seeing and hearing more from you guys in the future um and it's going to be be really interesting to to follow the business but thank thank you very much for taking the time out today to talk to us john it's been an absolute pleasure to to have you on the show ryan thanks for having me this has been a blast brilliant <laughs>